We are in Exodus 17 today. Last week we did the first half, so we'll do the second half today. Exodus 17, and we'll be starting in verse 8. It says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven." And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So with this account that we have here, there are several things um, that I want us to look at. But we end with the Lord saying, I'm going to wipe out the Amaleks, the Amalekites. But it's not going to be, like he didn't immediately. He said, they will eventually be gone. And so we see in several different places, um, how, what happened here. And so I wanted to actually go look into it a little bit. And if you look at, um, I think it's uh, 1 Samuel 15, 1 to 3 is the verse I want to look at next. And so just for a little background on Amalek, back in Genesis 36, we find out that Amalek is Esau's grandson. So it's, that's the connection. And up until now, there has been no mention of judgment against Amalek or the, or the Amalekites for any reason. And suddenly, there's judgment being spoken saying we're going to wipe them out completely. And so that was fascinating to me. Like, why, how did they go from zero to 60 like that with judgment? Because they didn't have any judgment pronounced against them before. But if you go and look at 1 Samuel in chapter 15, we have this moment where Saul is king in Israel, and verse 15, uh, chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So now we hear that they ambushed him. What we saw earlier in Exodus 17, 8 is Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. But the, the picture develops. It was that there was something of an ambush going on here. And so this is, would be an unprovoked attack that suddenly they're having to deal with. And with both, um, it's an interesting story here because in the end, Saul goes and then he doesn't actually kill everyone. He spares King Agag of the Amalekites and Samuel comes and then, and it says he hacks King Agag to pieces. And so there's like this really violent ending of, of what's going on here. 
And so there's a lot happening that I, I don't fully grasp everything that was happening on this moment, but there was something about the way that Amalek, instead of coming out and welcoming back their brother tribe, instead comes out and starts fighting against them. And I think if you look in, um, we have two more verses here, Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25 is another mention of Amalek, or the Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25, and it's verses 17 to 19, and he explains a little bit more here. The Lord is speaking to Moses, or, or, and Moses is now speaking to the people, right? So this is the, this is the reminder of all the laws and different things, and one of the assignments that's being given to Israel is happening right here, and it is to destroy the Amalekites. So in verse Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land, which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So they've been given this assignment. He's saying, so we see more of the picture. Amalek came and started picking off stragglers. And so as they're coming into camp, eventually word comes back and says, um, someone's killing off people at the back of us as we're moving through the wilderness. And so you know, we're moving in the prescribed order, but we have a problem because someone back there is killing off some of our people, the stragglers, the weak, and we're weak and tired. And, and, and so instead of coming and facing them head on, this, the Amalekites were coming and picking off their stragglers. So this is the ambush, and so with it comes this assignment, and we could go down this whole path, because this is even part of why Saul was rejected by God, was because he, he literally not only didn't listen to the words of Samuel, but he didn't understand that this was an assignment that had been given to the Israelites, that they were supposed to go and take care of the Amalekites entirely. And so with that, that that's another message entirely, I believe, and so I wanted to keep going with it, but there was one more, one more verse just to verify the things we're saying. So in Numbers 24, verse 20, we have a, another mention here. So Numbers 24, verse 20, it's when Balaam is up on the, um, on the mountain, and he's supposed to be, uh, he's been hired to curse Israel, but instead he keeps prophesying good for Israel. So then he's doing all these prophecies for all different people. And he says this, he says, Amalek was, is, this is Numbers 24, 20. Amalek was first among the nations, but, he shall, but shall be last until he perishes. And so I think just in passing, it's worth seeing here that Amalek was doing well and the Lord was willing to bless Amalek, but Amalek unprovoked with no reason attacked Israel. And so I thought about this, this scenario, um, and I think it's worth thinking about, is that you know, in our day and age, we are very concerned about is something heresy, is something wrong? And so there are whole ministries that have sprung up just to poke holes in other ministries, just to expose what someone else has done. And so what happens in many times is you have people who are strong in the spirit, strong in the word of God, who are working with different ministries, understanding what's happening, but then there are those who are weak and they're straggling and they're coming behind. And so someone comes along and says, well, let me tell you why this guy is all heresy and why you shouldn't believe anything he's doing. 
And instead of actually directing the stragglers to the truth, they're literally turning them away from Christianity by going, oh, oh, that one's bad, that one's bad, that one's bad. And that was the spirit that I see here with the Amalekites, is that there was, a, there was an opportunity to meet the people of God. There was an opportunity to say, hey, remember generations ago, Jacob and Esau, remember, you know, and, 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 the, and they could have remembered all of that, and they could have established a friendship and a, a brotherhood of nations, so to speak, and I think God would have let that, would have blessed that because there was no reason up until now for God to go after them. But instead, they came and they started picking off stragglers. And so within the kingdom, we all have a mission, and this is important to the rest of our message. We have one mission that we've been sent out to do, but we have different roles. And there are times when someone is doing a role and they're doing it differently than what I would do it. And so I have two options. One is to go and say, wow, I see that God has called you and that God is working through your life and I would like to find ways that I can encourage you and help you. Um, If I'm really concerned about the way they're doing it, I might start working alongside them or start a separate thing where I'm reaching out to people, making sure they're okay. So there's been times in, in, even in the history of, of our fellowship where we have such diversity here in our midst that I will hear conversations and I know a calling is over here. I know giftings are over here. I see a different calling and gifting over here and then I'll hear a conversation and I'll just follow up later and be like, hey, are you okay with how that conversation went? Because what I was hearing was someone was not understanding that we might have different giftings and callings. And they're trying to force everyone into the same role or the same gift and calling. We have differences and we have different ways of operating. And we need to be able to respect that without immediately going and assuming that the other person is the enemy of God or a heretic or whatever. And so there is a way for us to work together. And in America right now, we have such comfort and such uh, really just prosperity in so many ways that you can have so many different kinds of ministries and some of them are very self-seeking. And then there's, there's some, there, I, I stumbled on several different ones over the years where their entire life purpose is just to explain why other people who say they're following God aren't. And that's actually not preaching the gospel. That trying to expose evil is different than preaching the gospel. When you preach the gospel and you preach who Christ is, you will expose evil but it's a different context. And so I think it's very careful to understand that there are stragglers in the kingdom. There are people who are tired and weary and they're coming along behind. And when we, the, the people that ought to be working together become, we start attacking each other, what we're taking out is the stragglers. We're taking out the tired, the weary, the heartsick people, and we're removing their hope. And God is not okay with that. And so we see in this imagery here with Amalek, a very strong judgment on Amalek, which I find fascinating then because in terms of, uh, uh, in in perspective to what Stacy read from Jeremiah this morning about how the, the, the person who sins, he will die. And so we know that God is always willing to give mercy to anyone who repents and anyone who turns. And you you can read, um, the account of the potter in Jeremiah and other things, and you'll see that message come through over and over again. And so there should have been a way that the children of Amalek could have turned back to God. And there probably was something, but they didn't pursue that. And so we see them just being destroyed on and on. So that was, that's one part of the message. Why is the, why is the judgment on Amalek so hard? 
And it was, I think, because of the way he ambushed and he took out the weak and the weary and the tired. God has a special place in his heart for the weak, the weary, and the tired. He, has, he wants to protect, he wants to lead, he is a shepherd, and he cares for those. He is not a heartless general who says, well, I, I'm going to kill you off if you're sick. I'm only going to keep the most healthy people in my army. He, he wants to keep all of us working in his, uh, in his mission. And he has a special place for us in that. And so we see that, the way that he cares um, it, for, the, for the widows and the orphans and all of that. It's, it's the heart of God. And so I think a lesson for us is just to simply think about how do, when we, are, when we see someone else, like Israel, coming into the nations, you know, Israel comes in suddenly, and it, they're huge. And Amalek is hearing, hey, these people have left Egypt. They're wandering around out there. And instead of doing their due diligence, figuring out what's going on, and, and understanding that there is a God in heaven who cares about what's happening, they just went and started picking off the stragglers. And so we can do the same thing. We can, we can hear someone say, oh, this, this or that ministry. And all it takes is to have one person that's involved with one ministry to be acting in the flesh for it to be getting a bad name in any way. And so then we can have bad names or bad you know, news out there or gossip or whatever. And so you can find something wrong with every single ministry that's out there, every church, every movement, everything. And so if you think your ministry is to go find and point out the flesh, that's the same as picking off the stragglers. That destroys the church. So let's not go there, but instead let's find out how to build each other up. So I think the rest of the message will help us understand more of how can we build one another up. So if you look after the attack, after, so it's in verse 8, it says Amalek came and fought. So this is back in Exodus 17. Verse 8 says Amalek came and fought with the Israel in Rephidim. We now have the context that they didn't just come out and directly attack. They came out and were scouting around the back and were killing off the stragglers and stuff and were ambushing them. And so Moses finds this out. He talks with Joshua. Joshua chooses men. He goes out. He fights with Amalek. And so we have this, this picture that's then happening where we have Moses taking the rod of God and he goes to the hill and he's holding up the rod of God. And what, from what we see later, we see that he's actually holding up both hands. So I don't know if he's holding the rod like this with two hands, you know, like horizontal, or if he's just holding up the rod on this side, like a Gandalf type, don't do, you shall not pass. I'm not sure, but he's holding up the rod and he's holding it up and he's on the hill and he has two men with him, and he's praying, supposedly. I don't know what he's doing exactly. Does It doesn't say that he prays. He just says he's going up on the top of the hill with the rod of God, and he's going to stand there. And so this is fascinating, because sometimes um, in, in ministry, we will see things like this, where Joshua has a sword in his hand. Moses has a rod in his head. Joshua goes and contacts the enemy. Moses stands up on a hill. Joshua has fighting men, warriors all around him that he's taking out into battle. It seems to make sense that if you have a physical enemy who's coming at you and killing you, that you would do the Joshua thing. You would have the army, you would have the men, and you would go into battle. But Moses says, I'm going to be up there on the hill and I'm going to be holding up the rod of God. And so Joshua goes down and he's in the battle. And it says in verse, um, well, let's just keep reading. Verse 11, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
So we're on a hill. I'm seeing the battle. So here comes Israel. They're surging in. And then Moses gets tired. Hand goes down. Amalek starts pushing them back. Moses says, ah, and Joshua fights back. And so you see this surging back and forth on the battlefield. So Moses' hand, in verse 12, Moses' hand becomes heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So first of all, we understand that Moses and Joshua are on the same side. They're both Israelites. They both have the same mission from the Lord. They both have the same cause. They serve the same God, but they have very different roles. And Joshua goes down into the battle. He draws his sword. So now my imagination is that if I'm carrying a sword and if I'm wielding a sword in battle, that I would get tired. But we're not told that Joshua is the one getting tired. It's Moses who's standing up on the hill holding up a stick. And he's the one who's tired. And so from a purely perspective, you know, I'm standing off to the side looking at the whole thing. I'm going, what? What's going on here? Why, is, why are we so concerned that Moses is, t- like Moses is tired? What about Joshua? He's actually having to use a physical sword. That would make me tired and scared and probably bloody. Like, this, this is not a good situation. But J- Moses is the one who's getting tired. Now, it's true that Joshua has his men. They have their, whatever their method of fighting was, they're down there, they're doing something, Right? But what Moses is doing is directly impacting what's happening on the battlefield. And so from our perspective now, we can say, well, Joshua represents the physical. His hand has a sword. He's obviously in the battle. Moses represents the spiritual. His hand holds the rod of God. He's on the hill away from the battle. It's not as obvious to us that what he's doing is effective. Like it's not even like he has radio communication with anyone. He's just up on the hill. Like he can see it all, but if he sees like, hey, Joshua, to the left, you know, he can't even do that. He's just standing there, but he has the rod. And so Aaron and Hur are standing with Moses. They sit Moses down. They position themselves in such a way so he can put his arms out and keep his arms up the whole afternoon until the sun goes down. And Joshua wins. So Moses has Aaron and Hur, Joshua has his entire army, Joshua wins, and where does the praise go? The praise actually doesn't go to either Moses or Joshua. The praise goes to Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, our banner. And as I was contemplating on this, there are several pieces that I wanted us to think about. So first of all, we learned a lesson from Amalek. Let's not be picking off the stragglers. Let's be very cautious about how we speak about other ministries so that we're not just making people despair of the kingdom entirely. Let's learn how to speak first the kingdom and and point people to Christ so that if someone is straggling and is weary and is tired, we're pointing them to the springs of living water. We're giving them actual hope. We're actually helping them and not just saying, well, don't listen to those other people. Because I think it's easier from a human perspective to just to try to make a list and say, well, don't listen to these people. Don't listen to these people. Uh, Yes, listen right here. Yep, yep, yep. We agree with them, not to them. Okay, And, and we can kind of create our own little special spot where if you learn all the ins and outs, we can get together, we can talk the same 
same language. We can congratulate each other for being so smart. And at the same time, we're not winning people to Christ because all we're doing is saying, well, this is good, this is bad, and we're not actually preaching Jesus. And so it's harder to come in and when someone says, you know, so-and-so has been saying this, and you say, okay, well, and so you actually have to engage the conversation. You have to actually engage and say, well, what do you think? Is this helping you in your discipleship? As you are following Christ, is your involvement with this ministry, is it helping you? Are you being strengthened? Are you being encouraged? And, and, and what can I do to help you with that? And so we find ways to actually encourage each other with that instead of saying, oh, you shouldn't do them because I heard that there was problems over there. And, and my, the worst one that I hate the most, and, and I haven't really run into it in a while, but it'll be like someone will be like, oh, don't go over there. They've got problems. You're like, well, what? And they're like, oh, it's bad. And they'll just stop it at that. They'll just say it's bad. And you have to take their word that it's bad. And so you think, man, it's bad. And if you ever go over there, you find out, oh, there are actually people here who love God and are trying to do the right thing most of the time. Occasionally you get there and it's bad. <laughs> but most of the time, it's actually real God-fearing people trying to serve the Lord, and they have a different approach potentially than what we do. And so we might come to this, and, uh, and just in all honesty, most of the church will fall into one or the other camp. We're like, you've got to get on the mountain and pray, and the other half says, gird on your sword and go down into the battle. And so someone says, I'm supposed to go on the mountain to pray, and everyone around them says, what, what do you think that's going to do? Gird on your sword, let's go engage the enemy. And so you're going to have this uh, disagreement and, a dis and misunderstanding that we actually need all the roles in the kingdom. We need all, everyone fighting. And maybe you're called to carry the sword and follow Joshua, and maybe you're called to go stand on the hill and pray, or whatever it is. And what's fascinating with this rod being held up, and then later, the name of God, Moses built an altar, this is verse 15, Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. So I don't even know that there was a physical banner the way we think of it on that rod. And yet he's saying, God is my banner. So it was almost a spiritual thing where he's saying, I'm identifying with the Lord, Jehovah Nisi, and he is my banner. And, and so he's recognizing that God is the one who is actually destroying the Amalekites, not him. And so they're in this battle. They're both doing this. But we, we each of us, we all serve in different roles, same mission. God is our banner. And so I wanted now to just go over, thinking about this incident, thinking about how this, the two pieces were there, I wanted us to read from Ephesians 6. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. We'll read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So if you take this and you apply it and you think about Moses and Joshua, it's almost as if, because of what we see in other places, that if Amalek had humbled themselves and said, can we come and join you and serve your God, that Israel would have welcomed them in in different ways. 
that there was a process for that. In fact, later on, um, there is more talked about in the law as, he, as they're there in the wilderness. There was a process for people to come and say, we want to be part of who you are and we want to serve your God. But physically, they had set themselves up as enemies and so they had this responsibility, Israel did, of knocking them out. So I think about us and we see enemies around us, people who oppose us, and it is easier and I see this in politics a lot of times, like if we, if we can just completely destroy someone, then that was way easier than to think, how do I get that person on the team that I'm on? How do I get that person serving God? This is not an easy process. That's way harder. If I can just say they're bad and they're going to hell and that's that, and they're, or, or maybe I'm, I say they're bad and they're being inspired by hell itself, and I can say don't do anything and listen to anything, anything that man does is horrible, then now I've written it off and I've just taken care of it, but what if God wants to actually convert that person and bring them around to a good place? Well, that would actually take something besides me writing him off in the physical realm. That would require spiritual battle. It would require spiritual influence. And it would require grace from God into that person's life to actually help them repent and come and turn and, and become part of the, the army of the Lord. So this is, I think, the beautiful thing what we're in is we're in a battle that is not a battle against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers. And so every time that we find an enemy of, of God or an enemy of ours, no matter how wicked they seem to be, what we discover scripturally is the enemy holds them victim and they need to be released. They need to be freed from their bondage. Now, if you've ever tried in your own flesh or in your own power to just walk up to someone who is sold into sin and is in bondage to Satan and to just walk up and say, hey, like, why don't you just get over it and start living right? You'll learn very quickly that you don't have what it takes to deliver that person. Like, it will not be a pleasant conversation. It will be, it'll be a problem. And so what you'll want is the Holy Spirit to actually come and be able to reach that person. You want the principalities and powers of darkness to be bound and to be removed from being influenced over this person. And you want the Spirit of God to be able to speak into their lives. And you want them responding not to you, but to God. And so suddenly this is something different. So there's been different, um, different quotes at different times. And I think there's one from Amy Carmichael, I believe I might have the wrong person, but the quote goes something like this. If you would spend as much time talking to God about people as you do talking to people about God, you'll have better results. And then a huge problem is we actually spend, this is not part of the quote, quote but just an observation. I'm more tempted to spend time talking to people about people than even bringing God into the mix sometimes. I wanna just, I'm, I'm talking to other people about, have you, did you, did you see what happened? It's bad, you know? And so I'm, I'm going back down that trail. And so instead of understanding that if I, I want to talk to people about God, but it will sure work a lot better if I first talk to God about these people. And so there is a spiritual sense and a physical sense. There is a, there is a reality that we're in that yes, it's a real battle, but we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We actually were once, prisoners of war right alongside these other people, but God rescued us, redeemed us, equipped us, and now we get to fight in the army of the Lord. And all of the people that we meet, 
100% of the people you meet need to be rescued. Some of them have already been rescued. Some of them are in the process of being rescued. But there is not a person you meet on earth that doesn't need Jesus, that doesn't need to be redeemed, that is not in some way been affected by the bondage that comes here on earth. And we all need it. And so if I can change my mindset to that I'm not fighting against the people, but I'm trying to serve the Lord and giving what I'm supposed to be doing, it can change things so that I might be willing to look ridiculous. I mean, maybe Moses looked majestic up on the hill, but I'm just thinking, I mean, he's tired. He's sitting on a rock. He probably looks like he's driving a Harley. Like, I mean, I don't know. He's just standing there and they're holding up his arms. But that action is actually influencing the battle down there. And so maybe if I'm just called to pray, I'm like, Lord, I'm praying here again, and I'm crying out, I I need to learn how to pray. I need to spend more time. I don't know what it is, but spiritually, God might be asking you to take part in a battle that you're never going to go down and draw swords in. You might never be the person that engages that individual that you're praying for, but you're involved in the spiritual battle because there's two sides to this battle. So yes, we have to go down and draw our sword, which in our, most of the time for us, that's going to mean that we go and engage in conversation um, and not a literal sword. But we do have to engage, but we also have to remember that it's not a flesh and blood battle. It's a spiritual battle. And so when he says in Ephesians, first thir- uh, Ephesians 6, 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I think we can look at that as being like, I need to take up the whole armor of God and I might need training. So if I see someone who is more into one gift or one role than the other, I need to be able to go to them and say, hey, can you share with me what you've learned? Now, if I am the person that is coming, someone comes to me and says, hey, share with me what you've learned, I have to understand two things. One is that I should share with them what I've learned. I should be willing to share and try to train them. The second part is just because they asked me doesn't mean that they're going to try to become exactly who I am. They're not going to become exactly my role and exactly, maybe a few times in your life, you'll meet someone else who shares your gifts and callings and roles exactly. But most of the time, you have some overlap, but then you have differences in responsibilities or jurisdictions. And so I'm not, if someone comes to you and says, can you teach me what you've learned? That doesn't mean recreate me in your image. It means share with me what you've learned and I, will, and, and, and I will assimilate that into my life. So if it's good and I understand it, I will practice it. If I don't understand it, I probably won't be able to do anything with it. But so this training, the taking up the whole armor of God so that I'm able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, the idea is that I want to do everything that I can do so that when I come into the battle, whether I'm Joshua drawing the sword or whether I'm Moses standing up on the hill before the Lord, whichever person that I am, that I can be there fully equipped for what God has asked me to do. And then in verse 14 where it says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. When I read this, Paul is talking about himself, but I think we can identify with him and see, oh, sometimes we need people praying for us because we're in the battle. Sometimes we need to be praying for someone because they're in the battle. I'm not quite sure how I want to close this today. I just really think that there is a spiritual battle happening that is manifesting physically. And this manifests in, the, in our politics of our land. It manifests in the way that we value or don't value life. Like There are a lot of people right now who are fighting very hard to keep abortion legal in, a, in the United States. Um, who are fighting to keep it legal in Colorado and who want to bring it back to where it's allowed, they're not understanding what they're doing. They're serving the God of death and not serving Jesus Christ. They don't get it. They don't understand that. Some of them might have had a glimpse at different times, but for whatever reason, they're committed to a dark cause. In the past, some of the people that were serving the God of death like Abby Johnson, when she turned to Christ, she has become one of the biggest warriors on this side. We know that can happen. So we can look at the people around us, some of our people that are running for office right now, and some of the things that they say to me are just, I cannot believe anyone can say that. And yet at the same time, of course they can. If they don't love Jesus, if they're not submitted to Christ, they can say that. If they're surrounded by people who do not understand the word of God, but claim to be Christians, and so that their interactions are not working well, so that when they draw the sword, it's really weak and wimpy, or there's nobody standing on the hill for them or whatever, and there's this interaction happening, it makes sense that debates can be lost or that people can be like, there's no power in Christianity. People can say that. And it's because we need to take on the whole armor of God. So how are we going to do that? Well, it means that we're going to fellowship with, one, with each other. We're going to read the word of God. We're going to dedicate ourselves to God, but we're going to recognize that in your circle right now, people that you know, people that you see on a daily basis, there might be someone who you can learn from. And there might be someone that you can speak to and that you can actually help learn how to raise prepare them up for battle. What we don't know is how was Joshua ever prepared to be a, a, a general? I mean, Moses says, hey, Joshua, take some men, go. How did this happen? Like we see different other pieces sometimes where Joshua, there's a time when Joshua is at the tabernacle and he doesn't leave the, the presence of God. He's just there. But how does it happen? And so I don't know, there, there is no specific way that each of us is going to be trained for what God has for us, but each of us needs to be trained. So, you know, if, if I'm learning how to build houses, I need to be with people who build houses. If I'm learning how to repair cars, I need to be with people who repair cars. If I'm learning how 
to share God's word with other people, I probably need to be with people who are doing the same. And so each of us has to look around us and say, well, who in my life is already doing some of this? And maybe they're doing it in a different way. You know, maybe they're the Moses and I'm the Joshua or vice versa, but we should get together and we should talk about it. And I think it's helpful to be aware that most people will assume just automatically that somehow if I've experienced it, you should experience it the same way. But that's not the case. It's not exactly how we interact with God. We have to, the, the, the battle of the Amalekites, what Moses experienced that day and what Joshua's experience was that day were vastly different. And so if both of them would write down their, you know, what they learned about battle that day, I mean, Moses, what he learned about battle that day was literally, if I can keep the rod of God up, we win. And Joshua, while he appreciates what Moses is doing and understands that there's ebbing and flowing, he's going, well, we had to learn communication. We had to learn how to keep our men forward. We had to learn how to support each other in the battle. We had to learn how to actually hand-to-hand combat. We had to, there's a lot of things we had to learn. But it sounds completely different because here's Moses, he's watching the battle and he's keeping the rod of God up and that's his part. And so if I'm going to learn how to do sword fighting, I don't want to learn from Moses because he's got one thing in place. Now maybe he does know sword fighting. I don't know. Maybe he taught Joshua. We're not told any of that. But on the day of the battle, Moses is on the hill holding up the rod and Joshua is down drawing the sword. And sometimes I have, you know, as a pastor, it helps to sit with other pastors and hear what God is doing in their lives. But as a believer, who, any believer who's making disciples, if you start looking at how different people are making disciples, like you don't want to do it all the same way. And I've met people who are definitely evangelists who will have conversations with people to make them think about God for the first time in years and sometimes be able to lead them to a point where they say, I want to follow Jesus. And, and people do it different ways. And I've actually been to those classes. I've been to fishing classes and to event, even evangelism classes. And so someone will come and share with us exactly what they do every time. And I remember... Uh, like uh, one, of my, one of my mentors would just go in and he'd say, hey, do you know there were you know, two thieves on the cross with Jesus that day? And one of them went to heaven and the other one didn't. You know why? And he'd just start a conversation like at you know, King Supers or wherever he was. Like while he was in line, that's, he would just ask that question. He would ask anyone, there were two thieves on the cross that day. I tried that one time. And I was like, well, that didn't work so great for me. But you know what did work for me for years when I was a gospel chalk artist? I would just get to chatting with people and, and I would try to get them to ask me what I did. Um, and I'd be like, here's what I do. I'm a gospel chalk artist. Like, here's an example of my work. And so then I would show them the two ways drawing where here is the, the two ways and it would point life and death. And then the hidden picture is you see the, 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 the lake of fire and you see the, the celestial city up here. And so at that point, the conversation was either finished because I had showed them what I did and then I was moving on or they would say, oh, and they would ask some question about it and I could naturally talk about what I did. And so I found that worked for me if I wanted to try, for me to do evangelism, I had to use something from my life. And so I think that's important for us to understand is that God does different things in different people at different times. 
And that's okay because it's the same God, same spirit, same mission, same cause, same kingdom, but one of us will be stuck with this and the other one's drawing the sword and going swashbuckling into the battle. And we wanna support each other in that and recognize and be grateful for the other people who are playing the other parts. To not assume that because, I mean, just think about this. If, if Joshua didn't have a perspective that Moses was a man of God and he's expecting Moses to be the leader of the Israelites and here comes Amalek and Moses like, um, you, you go out there. I'm, and jo- Joshua ends up down in the valley fighting. Where's Moses? Oh, he's up on the hill. He's sitting on a rock. What is this? Like if he didn't have, there had to be mutual respect. There had to be mutual understanding of what's happening. And so even today, like when, when I, I've known some people who pray and pray and pray in all kinds of ways, and you have to respect that, and you have to ask for prayer wherever you, can, wherever you find them. Because, and, and then sometimes you have to realize you might be the one who's called to pray in a given situation because you're not on the front line. You can't draw the sword and engage. You're only watching from a distance, and it's your time to say the Lord is our banner and we are in the same battle. And Lord, I'm standing before you on behalf of what's happening over there. And I'm crying out to you on behalf of what's happening over there. And I'm asking you for mercy on behalf of what's happening over there. And it might be your turn to do that. So we have different seasons, different roles, different gifts, different ways of engaging for the kingdom. But we have to remember and respect and really encourage one another in, in our different roles. So that's, that was my message out of Exodus 17, is the reminder that the Lord is our banner. It is his battle we're marching in. You know, a lot of times, especially, I don't know what they do these days. I know that um, in the more recent battles, like in, in Iraq and, and with the, the whole terrorist thing, they, they worked very hard to create insignia and things that, so you could see someone and know who they were because the terrorists would come in um, and just infiltrate you in such a way that you could be shooting yourself. And it happened several different times where, where people were actually shooting, where it was, they call it blue on blue or something like, you know, where they're actually engaging each other thinking it's the enemy. And it can happen really quick when you're in the field of battle. And so in the same way, in the Christian battle, like we need some insignia to know what it is. And so Moses is saying is the Lord is our banner and that's great. So how do I know if the Lord's banner is on your life? Most of the time I can't just stand, you know, on 16th street. Most of the time I can't just look at people going by and know whether they're believers or not. But usually with a conversation, I can find out fairly quickly. And so I think the confession of our faith and the way we, we share with each other is very important. And so that means before I just assume that you are the enemy and start trying to blast you out of the water, I need to actually engage with you and find out who, whose banner is over you. Do you have the banner of the Lord in your life? And I will find people that I will, who are serving Jesus and who are correct in part of their life, but I might disagree with 75% of what they are doing. And then I'm left with a very hard decision. Do I just write them off or do I walk with them because they have the banner of the Lord over them? Do I help them in whatever way I can? Because sometimes that's what's required. So there's multiple ways you can apply this to your life. 
You can think about it, meditate on it. But I want to pray for us that we can, first of all, make sure that when we go out to battle, that the Lord's banner is that we are marching with his colors and not on our own. You know, the old, the old Civil War time frame and all the way up, I think, through World War I. I'm not so sure about World War II, but your, your flag, your colors that you would take with your with each of, you know, and, and it was different sizes from the brigade, the platoons, all these. You'd have your flag, you'd have your color guard. And so you would, you would know where you're supposed to be based on where that flag was going because the flag was going with your leader. And so you would line up wherever the flag was. And so sometimes the flag would get carried out into the middle of no man's land in a very dangerous place and would plant it out there so that all the troops that were scattered everywhere would rally there and fight there because that's where the banner was. And so we're looking, where's the banner? Where is the Lord? What is he wanting to do? We are the people of the Lord. We march for him and we're going to do it in different ways, but we're going to do it for him. We are in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the picture of Moses up on the hill with Aaron and her on each side of him, holding up his hands because he's getting tired. And Lord, I thank you for the picture of Joshua in the valley pulling his sword out and going to battle and winning. And Father, I pray for each of us here in this fellowship and for those listening online. And I ask that you would help us to see how you want us to work. What is our part? That we would stand in support of each other, that we would go to battle when it was our time. And Father, I pray that you would be truly the Lord, our banner, and that we would truly be able to identify with you, that we are standing for you, for your kingdom, for your cause, for your mission that you've given us. And I thank you that you do not leave us as orphans, but you actually have called us into your ranks. You've called us your friends, your family, and you equip us to do battle. So Father, blessed be your name. We love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.